I echo what uh, Stefan said. It's great to have folks in our community who are experts in the field of taking care of us. So we're in good hands, as is Toby. And um, it's probably, uh, whatever's going on is probably all my fault because I love teasing Toby. And uh, I guess more importantly, he loves teasing me. And um, as we were coming in this morning, coming down the aisle, and I'll do this occasionally who folks are sitting on the end, so watch out. Uh, we, were, oh, we were singing that first hymn, and as I went by him, I turned the page to see if he knew the song. And so, again, it's probably all my fault, but they are out of here, and it's like they're being taken care of, and all is good. So we'll continue to keep Toby in our prayer. One of the finest guys you ever meet. You guys, all of you probably know him, but just the best of the best, and so we're praying for him. Well, <clears throat> I wish you could have seen it, actually. Uh, I did an interview uh, almost a year ago, well, a year ago on the 24th, uh, with a friend of mine, uh, and it was so potent and so powerful. We, we filmed it uh, for worship, well, actually for online worship a year ago. Many people were still not sure they wanted to be in church, but it was such a potent and powerful interview, um, and it was on this text talking about this text. I wish I had a way of showing you. We did it early church at Aldersgate. We showed clips of that video so you could hear Chris in his own words, but um, he's a good friend and a wonderful man. Uh, but let me tell you a little bit more about him because a lot of what I'm saying today is an echo of his words. Um, he is uh, the district superintendent of the Capital District. And for those of you who may not be Methodist or those who are watching who may not be Methodist, that means that he was an overseer of a region, an area, and that's really the Raleigh, uh, Durham, the Triangle area, parts of Durham and up north of there, and he oversees the pastors and the work of the churches, just like uh, our district superintendent here in our area, Mike Freeze does, for our district. But he's more than an ordained clergy person and district superintendent. He, out of high school, he went right into the military, and after the military, he uh, became a psychologist. He has a PhD in psychotherapy. He's a preacher, administrator, counselor, and a seventh generation Methodist. Not only that, he's married to a Duke professor surgeon who's a hepatologist, and she's in charge of a great deal of the um, transplant surgeries that go on over at Duke. So these are people that kind of have their stuff together. And the reason we filmed Chris and did the interview with him, because I was at a pastor's meeting, and um, I just, I've been to, I don't know, I will say hundreds of pastors' meetings over the years, and they are usually very forgettable. Uh, now, I never had uh, Pastor Marshall as my DS. I'm sure his were never forgettable, but the ones that I went to were generally forgettable. But this one that Chris had that day was so profound and so powerful that I actually took notes. I have never, ever, ever before or since taken, sorry Mike if you're watching, taken notes at a pastor's meeting. His devotion that day was actually um, for pastors and trying to deal and cope with the world in which we're living, which is so different um, as we move out of COVID, when everything we've known doesn't work anymore. And it seems to me that our lives, our churches, are all in the same boat. Things are just different. Have you noticed that the world is just different since COVID shut everything down and we're trying to get back to normal, but I'm not sure we know what normal is. 
one of the key points Chris talked was about, said that we must learn, I want you to listen to this, this is one of my notes, we must learn how to seek meaning in the midst of senselessness. We must seek meaning in the midst of senselessness. I wish you all could have been with me on that walk of Chris. I think I know you would have gotten a lot out of the conversation. We're going to post uh, that conversation and that interview online so that you can go back and watch it all. It's potent. And he goes on to say, you know, over our lifetime, we are given certain narratives and stories about if we do this, dot, 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 such and such, then this will happen. If you do okay in school, if you get a college education, if you do this, or if you start a business, if you do this, everything will come to an end point and all will be well. And the reality is, life is not neat, clean, and clear. Crazy things happen. You come to church expecting to enjoy worship and you go home sick or have to be wheeled out. Things happen in life that we don't plan on. Maybe that's not you, but I've discovered that in my life. As soon as I plan something, I've got it all together, guess what? A limb will fall on my head. I'll stumble and fall in a hole. Somebody will say something, and things go awry. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe I'm the only one in the room. I hope so. But it seems like that's the reality in which I find myself. And the problem is, if we allow our story to be so clear, cut, and dry, and neat, and we expect it to go that way, and then we fail or fall, we find ourselves wondering, what am I going to do now? What's next? And senselessness hits us right up against the face because we've been told a story that if we follow the script that we've been given, and, and now the scripts are not working out, what do we do? So making sense of the senseless is not an easy task. It's not because it's about, listen to this, it's about tolerating and becoming exceptional in the ambiguity in our lives. Tolerating ambiguity in our lives and recognizing that everything is not either or. Do you know some black and white people that's either this way or that way? Don't look at them, but do you know them? <clears throat> There's a lot of people that live that way, but unfortunately, life just doesn't operate that way. There are a lot of people, maybe you, living in a place of senselessness and pain, and you've planned and planned and planned, and the plan went off the tracks, and you're living in ambiguity, and it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like things are going well because that's not the way we think we can live our life. Our life has to be planned out and thought out, and if it goes awry... We don't know what we will do. I think the reason people, as they age, they soon realize that just take life as it comes, day in and day out, and enjoy where you are. But I think the reason we get all discombobulated when life doesn't go the way we want it to go is we have an understanding, a, a, a kind of facade that we control things. Do you know somebody that thinks they can control things? Do you know somebody that they think they can control everything again? Don't look at them, I'm just asking you the question. And it's really, they're only faking themselves out. And you know, you can plan, you can get all the degrees in the world you want, your bank account can be plush, and the senseless comes and happens. For a lot of us, we shut down, don't we? 
Listen, here's the deal. Life requires agility and the capacity to sometimes stand on the balcony of life and look over the dance floor. What do you mean by that? Well, life requires agility. Sometimes it means, you know, going up in a balcony and looking at the big picture. It's kind of like if you're dancing on a dance floor or something and, and you're in the dance and there's all kinds of people. All you see is what's right in front of you. Your dance partner, you're listening to music, making sure you're getting the rhythm right for those of us who have any rhythm. And all you see is that. But if you go up and look upon the dance floor, you can see how all the pieces fit together. It's kind of like a, if an architect builds a skyscraper and they don't plan on that building moving and swaying and having flexibility. You know what happens to that building? It crashes. Because a skyscraper has to have room to move. And if a person doesn't live a life so that they can live a life of agility and live in ambiguity, it's like an architect. Their life will not bend and it'll break and their life comes tumbling down. They don't know how to deal with life with them. But I'm at, the question for us today is this. Might it be that the God of the universe heard your plans, knows your plan, and say, huh, that's a good plan. But I have a bigger, broader, better plan, even in the face of the senseless, even in the face of the ambiguity in which you're living, even when you don't think you can make it, even when you think I may break. That's where they're practicing ambiguity and living with agility, even like engineers and architects have to do. It's when you know you're in the dance of life, but sometimes you go up on the balcony to see what's going on. You see, we find ourselves at this time and other times, post-COVID, dealing with COVID, those of you who have lost loved ones for COVID, those of you who have lost loved ones to cancer or heart attack or stroke or any other kind of illness and disease. We have at times of loss and grief, and some of us have lost tangible things, a person, a friend, jobs, workplaces, security. But some of the things we lost and are losing are intangible things like hope, a sense of normalcy, dreams. All these things, when they begin to tear down, tear at the core of who we are, and we're left in a state of anomia of not knowing what to do next. We're expecting, we're experiencing what Chris described as a disquieted soul. He says, a disquieted soul has lost a sense of place in the world and experiencing the, experiences the blurring of roles and boundaries and hopes and dreams, and it'll often lead to fear and anxiety. You know, the experts tell us that, and how do you measure this? I don't know, but our world and our culture, particularly Western cultures, are experiencing more fear and anxiety than we could ever imagine. We're living with uncertainty and loss of dreams and hurt and loss of life and loss of time. And all of these things combined together can reveal or show a disquieted soul. We begin to question, where is God? And if there, if there is even a God, if there is God, does God care about me and my problems? And frankly, it just doesn't feel that way sometimes. I know I'm probably preaching just to me. But a disquieted soul may become stuck in no man's land of endless questions and fears. When we find ourselves in this world view or we have this metaphor stuck in our brain where we've lost everything and God is not there, we have to remember we're 
on the dance floor, all we see is what's right in front of us, what's right around us, and, and trying to negotiate the music and dance with our partner. And sometimes we've got to go to the balcony. When we're on the dance floor, our perspective is limited. We focus, as I said, what's right in front of us, our own vision, what we see. But if we take a break and go up to the balcony, we see the whole scene. We see the whole dance floor. And our part in it begins to make more sense. On the balcony, we can see the whole picture. You see, when our view is limited to what we can see on the floor, so often we can't see what we need to see. From the balcony, we can catch a glimpse of what God sees, an eternal you, an eternal hope. Chris tells the story of his being in uh, officer's training school. Uh, failed to mention he was also an officer in the military. He's such a slacker. But anyway, he um, says when you're leading a group of men and women, you have to be able to know how to orient. They call it orienteering. Any scouts in here know, or any military people, orienteering is important. And what that, it's land navigation. You have a compass, you see, you see the stars, you see the moon, you see the, uh, the sun and all this, and you have to be able to get people from point A to point B. And he said when he went through, through this training, he did it in the winter. I believe he said February. And then when he had his test for his orienting, guess what? He did it in late March. What happens from February to March? Everything looks wooden and brown and desolate, and then at the end of March, everything is, pollen is everywhere, everything's blooming, the leaves are on the trees. And he said he got to the test in orienting, guess what? He failed it. He didn't know what he was going to do. He talked to his supervisor, his person that he went to in the military, this thing. he said, you know what the problem is? No, he said, um, Chris, when you were training for orienting, it was winter, and the landscape has changed. The season has changed. You have the tools you need. You have your map, your compass. You have everything you need, but the land has changed. you got to learn how to adjust your vision to what is there. You have to learn to practice ambiguity, knowing that the landscape is going to change. And if, if, you, if you don't understand that, you will stay lost. That makes a pretty good theological argument as well. We're going to experience more and more pain. And if you don't understand, you have to read the land. Rather being stuck where you are, disorientation becomes a fixture for our lives. You see, brothers and sisters, we in our lives and we in churches are in a new ecosystem, a new environment. In order for us to move faithfully and successfully forward with our Lord, we have to be able to read the terrain differently around us and adjust our vision to where it is. And the sooner we recognize that as individuals and as a community of faith, the better equipped we can to live into the new reality that we are now facing. And there will be some people, maybe the person you're sitting beside or the person in front or behind you, hopefully none of that is true and there'll be some churches who will refuse to acknowledge that the world has changed forever. And if we, and if they, if we, you and me don't change also, we will just kind of shrivel up. 
or at the very least, we will cease to have any real impact upon the world because the world has moved on. The world is not the world that we had. It's a new world. And that's how it is for these two people on the road home that we call the road to Emmaus. Their season has changed. Their world has changed. They have lost their bearings, their true north. They may be on their way to Emmaus, on their way home, but actually they are lost. You see, they had bet their lives on Jesus, and from their point of view, they had lost. But the beauty of the Emmaus story is that there is a third person with them, and we're standing in the balcony watching this dance, so we understand that this person is Jesus, but these two folks on the dance floor, they don't recognize him because they are limited, and they are caught up in their own perspective, their grief, their dashed dreams, their hopes have created a storm in their lives, and their foundation, their very foundation has shifted. And you heard the conversation. The third, this third person asked them what they're upset about. And this person asked them, where is their hope? And when they share with this third person how they feel, this third person, this man lays out the story for them from a balcony perspective. Didn't the Messiah tell you he'd have to suffer and die? Don't you see how this fits together? And they talk about it, and they, they are impassioned and emboldened as this third person, Jesus, walks and talks with them. And the Scripture says their hearts are burning, but they still are on the dance floor. They still don't know who this stranger is. And think about how Jesus leads through this situation. Jesus could have appeared to them in some blinding flash saying, Hey, it's me. I'm the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus but instead he comes and enters the dance with them and listens to their pain, their hurt, their anxiety. He walks alongside them, comforting, comforting them with his words and his presence instead of dazzling him with his power. And I think that's still the way our Lord works with us today, walking alongside us. These two folks walking home have a third person walking with them, the resurrected Christ. They are experiencing pain and crisis. They've been invited into Jesus' story, and they've invited Jesus into their story, and the stories come together into integration. These two disciples of Jesus invited Jesus, whom they didn't know was the resurrected Lord, into their home. And they sit at the table, and they talk, and they engage, and they talk. And the world changes with them. The room feels different. It's almost as if they've been sharing, they're sharing bread together as in this hospitable environment. And they've invited Jesus all of a sudden to me. It's as if you read the story, you can feel as you read the story, there's a building of it. And it's almost a sense of these two were downtrodden. All of a sudden, they, uh, they, they come more and more enlightened. They get more and more excited. And it's because they have been touched by the mystery. They've been touched by the mystery the thing that we can't control, the thing that will shape us. We can't put our hands around it. And the, and the precise, precise moment of when they need it, though, it revealed, it was revealed to them in the midst of loss and uncertainty ambiguity of life. And in their literal travels, the two merge into the one who is the mystery. So this is the challenge we have in our Christian faith. And as disciples, we want to domesticate the mystery. We want to domesticate the mystery, and, and the mystery is the Christ. We want to put periods and, and semicolons and colons and points and bullet points, and Jesus refuses to be controlled. Jesus refuses to be boxed in. 
Jesus refuses to be boxed into our narrative. We cannot contain the mystery. You cannot domesticate the Lord Jesus Christ. And because you know the thing, if we tried to do that controlling thing, that God's plan has to be my plan, you know what we do? We extinguish hope. We extinguish hope. It isn't comfortable living with a mystery. Because if you're living with a mystery to Christ, you have to learn to live with ambiguity. And I'm not good at living with ambiguity. But as we live with it and practice it more and more, it becomes more an adventure. It becomes more of who we are. So where are you today? Are you on the road, walking, desolate, tired, weary, confused, hurt? Are you at the table wondering if anybody's going to show up or what you're going to eat? Are you experiencing the mystery and enjoying the adventure? Are you on the dance floor wondering what the next move is or are you looking from the balcony? Both of them are great places if you're willing to live with them. God, I thank you for these people. We again pray for Toby. Strengthen him. Be with his family. Give doctors and the medical team wisdom. Wisdom. 